Hello and welcome to the TES International Podcast with me, Dan Worth. In this episode, I chat with Liz Free, the CEO of the International School Rheintel in Switzerland. We chat about the importance of school leaders establishing strong relationships with their governing boards, why it's vital strategic thinking is central to these discussions rather than day-to-day activities, and when to call on them for their expert advice. We also discuss how leaders can make the most of their budgets for external consultants to help inform a school's strategy, including how you pick the right people for the job and use your context in the sector to do this, and why sometimes it's okay to reject the advice they give, even if you've paid a lot of money for it. All that and lots more on the TES International Podcast. Liz, welcome back to the TES International Podcast. You're actually a returning uh, interviewee, which is great because we've got some really interesting topics we're going to talk about. Um, but first of all, just before we dive into that, how, how are you? How's life in Switzerland at the moment? So Switzerland is beautiful. We have the the winter is coming, the children mm. keep saying. We've got the icing kind of uh, fall um, on the mountains. So we've got to the, the first signs of winter. Mm. So all is well in Switzerland. Good, good. This is what I love about the international sectors. You talk to different people in different parts of the world, a different perspective on how the seasons are affecting us and what's going on weather-wise. And it's just that global sense of education is, is so great to get. And um, as I said, we've got some interesting topics and we're going to sort of split them into two parts because they're sort of different but related as as listeners will come to uh, to hear. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is governing boards, which obviously is a is a massive topic. And this, we could probably do a whole podcast series on this. Um, but you sort of suggest you were talking to me, we were talking before, and we were sort of saying, you were saying about how that's such a big area and you know, there's different strategies to make sure you make the most of your board, how you get the expertise in the room to the benefit of the school. How do you make sure that that relationship functions well? So perhaps you can just set the scene a bit, you know, what is the structure in your school and what have you done since coming in then to try and make sure you're, you know, that's really working for everyone, both for for you as an individual and for the board, but also then obviously for the school and its community. So, yes. So my school, I'm a small school and we're um, an IB continuum school from age three to 18. We're a not-for-profit school and we are um, a sole entity. So we are a one-off school. We're not part of a group. Mm. And the board um, is an extraordinary board that we have. Uh, They are made up of people from the local community and local community for us means uh, potentially three different countries. Mm. (laughs) So we have Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Austria, and we have um, the regions within those areas as well. So they come from different parts. So we have the geographical representation for our um, uh, for the uh, catchment, essentially, mm-hmm. of the school. Then in our board, we have um, seven board members, which is really interesting. When they designed the, the board 20 years ago, my school is 20 years old, they thought really carefully about the board and they decided on the odd number so that um, if need be, the deciding vote would always be the chair of the board. So that's mm. an interesting point as well, the number of people you have on a board. The other thing about our board is that when I arrived is three of the board members had been on the board since the very beginning. So 21 years ago, so the very founding of the school. And I have an extremely stable board up to this point. So people come, they stay for a long time. Two of the board members are parent representatives, but they're not nominated um, in terms of a vote. Um, they, uh, You can only join the board with recommendation of other board members. Mm. So it's quite a, um, a kind of long-term view for a board, which is not always the case internationally. Mm. Um, and uh, the board that I now have is I'm going through a transition. So we're succession planning for board members that have been involved a long time and also uh, for the chair of the board as well. So we're looking at the long-term future and health of the organisation. Mm. Well, there's a lot there that, that sort of questions that come up. And I suppose one I want to ask is obviously having people on the board who've been there for a long time, that sounds really good. Like you say, the stability, they know the school, they really understand it. Is there also a case there though that, you talk about succession planning. I mean, is that is that part of this where you need to have sometimes also you do need to bring new people in because otherwise you people can get set in their ways or they can't they sort of revert to the default bit where sometimes you need someone to go, yes, actually that's a strategy we need to push harder. Yeah. I think you can think of a board like an ecosystem, just like a school, mm. is that you need fresh expertise. You need uh, people on the board that will challenge that are coming from current industry. And of course, as uh, board members get older, they retire. And so their kind of active um, engagement with the working environment can sometimes change. And that can be to a benefit as well. Because mm. um, remember that board members in schools like mine, they give their time freely. So it's an unpaid role and it's a big time commitment. Mm. So it has to, you've got to have someone that's got the time, but also the recent knowledge and experience. So it, it's mixed. I'd say the the long-term board members, they hold the institutional knowledge. 
And again, in the international sector where we have, well, I think the average tenure of a principal C, uh, director CEO is something like just over two years, which is bonkers. Mm. <laughs> you can't yeah. do anything in two years. Um, so the boards are really important to have stability. And I think when there is change, it needs to be like succession planning in school leadership um, in terms of um, heads of school, is you want to plan for that. You want to build capacity in this case, within the board, and have a clear mapped out plan for the movement of people um, onto the board, how we end up them, how do we really get that institutional knowledge across as quickly as possible, and also the core purpose of a board. Because what you don't want your board dealing with is uh, is whether or not we have hot lunches at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. <laughs> what you really want them thinking of is having the the knowledge to be able to be strategic and to be a critical friend to the and support to the director or head of school, whoever it is that reports into the board. And it's a massive issue in the international sector because we don't have the rigor of a national system that says it has to be this, this and this in terms of your structure. Mm. So when we see leaders going out into the international sector, there are often questions that you should ask about the board structure and how decisions are made in the school. What's the institutional knowledge? How is information shared? Where is it recorded? Can you see previous minutes of board meetings? Uh, you can't assume that they would operate in the same way as they would perhaps in the UK, hmm. where you're looking at um, as a common understanding of the role of a board in the UK. In the international sector, you're dealing with proprietary owned. You're dealing with organizations like mine, which are nonprofit organizations. You're dealing with for-profit uh, organizations and extremely complex makeup of boards from you might be in a city where your board is made up of the local core businesses like pharmaceuticals, for example, and they have a, a majority vote on the board. So they're very important cohort to owner-led, you know, that proprietary owned where there might be, I was in a school recently, actually, that has the owner um, is been in this, founded the school, I think, 30 years ago. And mm. when I went to the school to visit, they were there. They knew everything that was going on. So they're not um, a hands-off board. Yes. That's a board where they're involved in day-to-day -day business. And understanding that as a leader is critical. And I don't think a lot of school leaders, when they really go in, particularly their first headship position, necessarily ask the questions that they should. Mm. Well, that, that's very interesting because I can I can well imagine that. And particularly, like, so when you you maybe have the kind of expectation of what you come from the state sector and you care about how boards work and all oh, that, that'll be like it out there. And then you get there and, you know, as you sort of alluded to, there are lots of different setups. Um, in terms of your setting then, when you came in, was that sort of all established as you thought it would be? Did you sort of, have you, you know, changed how you operate with your board? Was there a sense of having to reinvigorate some elements that all slipped a bit? I mean, what, what, how have you gone through that process? Well, it, it was really interesting because when you think about it, how many board meetings have you actually been into? Dan, how many have you been into? In schools, none. In, in life, I... Um, None, I think is the there true answer. Yeah. So, and and when you ask most heads um, or early career heads, how many board meetings have you been into? Most of them would say none. Mm. <laughs> or if they've been in, they've been invited in to do a segment on whatever it might be yes. that they've been leading. But they're not. They're not doing the um, the agendas. They're not um, reporting on what needs to be reported on, on who decides that. Uh, so we are really ill-equipped to work with boards. So one of the first things that I did um, with the, the board here is I looked at what they'd done before and how they organised their agenda, which, of course, is the chair of the board's responsibility in most schools. Um, we didn't have a secretary to the board. So it used to be the, the previous CEO used to write the minutes as well. Mm. Um, now, I don't have the intellectual capability <laughs> to think. <laughs> so I think deeply in these meetings to be able to think deeply and to be able to provide um you know, lifetime feedback mm. and really thoughtful feedback whilst also recording the minutes. So one of the first things I did is I worked with the board and we agreed that the um, our administrator here in the school um, would become the board secretary or secretary to the board. So that's one of the first things I did is I took out the administrative aspect into a specialist role. The second thing that I did is I then looked at, we are a CIS school and we build, um, the board builds the agenda around the um, uh, CIS domains, which is really good practice. And so I kept that, but I decided I would do a board report based on those domains. And I did it as a, a PowerPoint format or Google Slides, whatever, and went through all of the updates. And I provided really clear information on things like academic standards, 
And I used it as an opportunity to educate the board about education things. Because when we're talking about education standards, if you ask most most boards, how do you know the quality of education in your school? Most of them would then refer to A-level IB results. But most of our schools are actually 3 to 18 or 11 Mm. to 18 schools. How do you know what's happening in grade three or grade two? Is there a high quality of education? Do you know that as a board? And if you don't, how will you find out? So I started to model that in the presentations that I was giving. So I was like, this is the evidence that we would demonstrate to show academic attainment. These are our current outcomes. These are, these show us that this, this, and this is really strong, and this, this, and this is of concern, or we see declining performance, whatever it might be. So I used it initially for me to be able to educate, but also assess the understanding of the board and also what the board want from me. And it was interesting after two years of doing this, so we meet six, seven times a year, where I do this, it's about an hour, hour and a half long um, presentation. And we then discuss aspects of it for core decision making, like leadership structure changes. Or, I mean, the recent debate we recently had is in our, our school is so small that we have grade five and six together, which in the UK is um, year six and year seven, mm-hmm. if you're in a British um, curriculum school or English curriculum school, I should say, actually. Yeah. Yeah, as a Welsh person. Uh, anyway. <laughs> and uh, we were having this debate because in International Baccalaureate, you can have grade five and six together and they don't go up to NYP until grade seven. So you have um, uh, six years of primary and then you have four years of middle years before you then go on to the diploma. It's possible to do that and I'd be allow you to do it. So if you're in one of these small schools, you can keep your combined grades. Well, we're now in a position where we could go to single grade. So we could now put our grade six into NYP. Well, that was a board discussion. So we collected all the evidence. We had all the IB information. We had what was global best practice. What do we see in other jurisdictions? And we then um, present that to the board. And I now bring in the specialists. So I've got a head of senior school, head of primary school. They came into that discussion as well. So I'd say my relationship has evolved with the board over this this two year. I mean, I'm going into my third year at the moment. And so first year was really laying the, 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 the ground as to where is the school currently at and how do you know? That's basically what I did. Mm. Second year, we started to think about, okay, which way do we need to go? And then by the end of the second year, the board said to me, Liz, we love the presentations, but um, you can now make them shorter because <laughs> I like to talk and they know that. Um, and what we really want to do now, now we have all that information. I've got a really solid um, board. We're now looking, we're in this cycle of our next strategic planning. So mm. we're looking at our strategic plan to 2030. So I'm now leading a project on that with the board and feeding back into the board. We're then discussing the feedback and then bringing it out. I couldn't have done that two years ago because we didn't have a common language. We didn't have a common um, uh, understanding of where the school was at. So I think the role, it's a really interesting role when you're a CEO, director or head, whatever your title is, but if you're the conduit to the board Mm. because you're accountable to them, they hire and fire you. Yes. That's a truth, isn't it? Particularly in the international sector. <laughs> like mm. I said, the average tenure just over two years, which is is shockingly bad. And and so there's a, a delicate relationship between the the board looking after the long-term health of the organization and the sustainability of the organization, whilst also being your um your boss mm. and you also having to educate them. So it's it's very, very delicate. And really, I think the most effective boards are the boards that are well educated. You've got significant expertise on the board, but they also recognize the expertise of the head teacher or director. Mm. That they and that there is a common language that is being used. There's clarity around what the board wants and what its role is. The director ahead is held to account to that as well. And that there are agreed priorities. There should be no surprises. Just like a student's report at the end of the school year, when a parent gets it, there shouldn't be any surprises in that report. Mm. If there are, then something's something's gone wrong somewhere. Yeah. And it's the same in a board conversation. So the clarity as to what there are, we agree what will be discussed in the next meeting. So we try to be really organized and structured. But I would say that the relationship and the way it works changes constantly. So like I said, where it is this year and how I work with the board this year, it will be different again in two years. Mm. It will be in a different place of yeah. over of a school and actually my board will have evolved again because we've got some new people coming into that when you were doing those things like putting the presentations together really engaging the board was that something that they i presume they appreciated or kind of obviously they weren't getting before so for them was there also that sense of 
again, I, I'm aware that you know, you want to sort of suggest sort of a negative, but did they sort of have to step up and sort of think, oh yeah, we need to sort of reinvigorate what we're doing as well? Because like I say, if you're giving that information, they weren't getting it before when perhaps they should have been, it's good for them as well to get a new leader come in to start that kind of dynamic. You know, do they respond well to what you were giving them there? I and I think it depends where your board is, uh, the history of your board. Mm. My board was extremely stable. So they've been very comfortable. But my school was also a startup. We are 20 years old this year. So the sorts of things that needed to be discussed at the board were quite operational about getting the school going. So they've not been in a position where they've really been looking uh, longer term than that. So it's at a different point, point of evolution. I, I, I think... I think with me coming in, yes, it brought brought a different energy because I'm always, you know, you've got fresh eyes. You're saying, why are you doing it that way? Mm. You know, why are you doing this and not that? And why is the board talking about this? Um, you know, like one, one of the things we tend to talk about, like most um, schools, it's usually the car parking, <laughs> <laughs> lunches yes. and homework. Those are the big three that shouldn't be in a board meeting unless mm. there's a, a strategic aspect around it. So I, I think it was really around where the school was at at the point that I came in. So was it working in looking really in detail at things like academic outcomes? No. Did it need to at that point? Well, yes, it needed to have an understanding of it. But at that point, it was more important that the school was operational, that was financially sustainable. Because again, the role of the board is the long-term health of the organization, the sustainability of the organization. What that looks like in the first 10 years of a school is completely different to what that looks like in the 20th year of a school. And so understanding where your school is at in its development is critical as well. So I, I wouldn't be crit. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that what they did before wasn't right. It was right for that time. Yes. And now we have to redefine what is right for this time, and that's the where your professional skills come in. And the hard bit is like you and I were just saying. You know, how many times have you been into a board? What models do you have? Is to start sharing amongst ourselves. So I talk to my other head friends and say, right, how do you do this? How do you do that? I make sure that all my um, board members are fully trained. They're all doing um, the ECIS uh, governance training which is really important that they understand the role of a board. Mm. And it sounds obvious, but it's not obvious. But when you ask, even if you ask a teacher, what does, what do the board do? Um, whether or not they'd know, I, I, I don't know. And so and we have to almost demystify it. Yes. And was that, is that, is that a tricky conversation to say to people who've been on the board for a long time, you need to go on this training to learn more about governance or did they sort of welcome it? Uh, well, there's varying degrees because they're all very busy people. They're like, mm. how long is it going to take me? <laughs> <laughs> and, and But with all of the online training that's available, so whether you're doing that through, I mean, we use um, uh, Educare, which you'll like it there. Right, yes. uh, so we use a lot of the Educare resources. So things like, uh, yes, we've got board governance training, but we also have um, safeguarding. And that freaks board people out. Mm. They're like, oh, we come here to do nice things. You know, we come to here to use our expertise and to help the school. We really don't want to be involved in um, things that about children being hurt. That That's a hard, a hard message to, to get over. But everybody does that as well. So every board member does child, uh, the um, uh, child protection annual refresher. It's really important that they have that. Mm. So I think there's ways and means. And what also helps is if you're part of an accreditation body, whether you're going through CIS or you're doing um, a BSO inspection, whatever it might be, is you've always got that angle. So saying, mm. actually, it's not me saying it, it's them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as a board, you said that you wanted to be a CIS accredited school or that the BSO inspection was really important because we wanted to offer um, uh, 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 training. We wanted to be able to offer the NQT, in which case you have to be trained. You have to have that inspection every six years. So if that's the decision of the board, what comes with that responsibility is a level of engagement and a certain compliance aspect. Mm. So uh, you can use that as a director or a head to also that leverage to really get the uh, level of engagement that you need. I have to say with the board that I have, I've got a high level of engagement. Mm. So I'm not having to, to battle on that front. And I think most boards generally have that. You have one or two who just might be very busy people, particularly if they end up taking a place of an organization. So often in international schools, you'll have a partnership with for example, at British School in the Netherlands, it was Shell. So you'd always have a Shell representative mm. um, on the board. Here in my school, we um, we have the Hilti uh, family, which are the power tool company. They own the power tool company in Liechtenstein. They um, are massive uh, funders and supporters of the school, and they also um, have a place on on the on the board. Sometimes when you get these organisation um, places. The, it's, it's important to get the right person. It's not somebody who just goes because they've been told they have to. Mm. 
Yes. <laughs> it's somebody who's genuinely interested in the, the health of the school. Mm. And uh, I have to say, I think we're quite fortunate in that, uh, but that's one to watch. Most people in, in the head role, the, the CEO role, ever be termed in their school, they're, you know, the buck stops with them up situation. But like you said, they then go into the board meeting and suddenly actually they're sort of answerable to these other people. They don't meet very often. Some of them, like you say, from a big organization on the outside, a funder, you know, a backer of the school. That's gonna be, that's very difficult, isn't it? Because you're suddenly not at the top and you've got to answer to these people. And, and, you know, would you have any sort of good advice or tips or anyone who is new into a sort of leadership role or who kind of looks at their board relationship and goes, yeah, I know it's not as strong as it could be, but I, I struggle to sort of, you know, wedge that line between imposing yourself, but also recognizing it's a collective and that they have bring some clout to the meeting. It's a tricky line to walk, isn't it? I mean, have you ever sort of, have you found that as you've sort of been through your career, you sort of learned to do that well? And is there any sort of good advice or tips or things that just kind of work well to do that? I think the most important thing, well, before I had this role, I've had other heads of school mm. roles with different boards, but I've always had somebody above me, like a CEO that would go into the board meeting. And what those CEOs did, which I didn't realize at the time, but now I do, is they always brought me in. So I'd be coming in to talk about the thing that I was working on, the thing that I was the expert on. So I, I got these experiences of boards before I became um, a, a head of school that was direct into the board. And that practice was really important. And I replicated in my own team. So mm. I try and give as many staff as much exposure as possible. The other thing is when you actually get to a role where you are the, the, the kind of the last stop mm. <laughs> into the board is that relationship with the key person in your board. You need to know who are, who are um, your advocates in terms of what you're trying to do to achieve in the school. It should always be the chair of the board. Always. If there is a disconnect between the, the leader of the school and the chair of the board, then there's going to, uh, that's extremely damaging for the future health of the organization. So if you're being interviewed, that relationship, you need to understand what are their, what are their expectations of you? And the sorts of questions are, is if I'm really successful as the leader of this school, how will you know as the chair of the board? What will you be looking for in five years? If we've absolutely nailed it, how is that looking for you? Mm. Um, how how will you and I work together? Um, and I have a great relationship with the chair of our board. Um, his name's Heiner, Mr. Graf. And he has grown up in this region his whole life. And he was um, a, um, involved in the founding of the school. And he, we have a brilliant relationship where we can be in my office here. We will debate things left, right and centre. He will also be very honest with me. He'll say, Liz, I've, I've got this, you know, there was a few rumblings about this or um, a couple of the board members had mentioned this. And so I, we, I never go in cold. Mm. We work as a team right. and with appropriate challenge. So I feel like he's somebody I can trust. Absolutely. If I'm struggling, um, I, can, I can say I have an annual review every year. Where, which is a really positive outcome. And one of the things um, I was asked last time is, what can we do for you? Are you happy? What do you need? Because they need me to be successful for in order for the school mm. to be successful. So I think my biggest piece of advice would to be to build the personal and professional relationship with the chair of the board, whether that means going out for a coffee, going out for a dinner, going, and in this case, when I go out with Heiner, it usually involves hiking somewhere which he does often doesn't tell me at the time as I'm walking in in my heels my four inch heels it's like, he says let's we'll just stop off for a little walk which in Swiss terms is like a 5k hike yes. uh, so, <laughs> so build that relationship on a personal level understand what motivates them give them time to understand you both when you're sat across a board table but also informally and then once you've got that relationship I think then it comes it comes very easy because there will be challenge in the board. You're dealing with people who are not sat in your school every day. If you're having to make admissions decisions and funding decisions, you're very close to it as the leader of the school. Your heart is in it. Mm. And um, when you're in that kind of a board environment, you're going to get some significant challenge. So I always, um, in terms of the chair of my, my board, I always share what I'm going to talk about beforehand. Um, there are never any surprises from from me or from him, so that we are we go in using that time with all these amazing specialist people as effectively as we can. Mm. Where the relationship breaks down between the uh, leader of the school and the chair of the board, then then it's not good for anyone. No. And I can't I can't imagine going into a board meeting and not having the support of my chair of the board. Yes, we and might I, not always agree on things, but at least we know where we stand. Yes, yes. It sounds like a very, like you say, that kind of um, you know, positive, uh, constructive sort of criticism or debate and, and sort of pushback, just almost just a test and idea, right? I think sometimes it's just someone sort of really seeing you have thought this through type thing. 
Do you think then that in an interview process, I presume then if the chair of the governors and the potential head teacher sort of clash or there's a sense of we don't have the same values, that's probably going to come out and, and not lead to a... So in a way, like you should have the confidence if you get a job, it's probably because the board liked you, obviously. You're probably going to hopefully start on the right yeah, alignment, probably. And But one of the things that happens in the international sector that Dan, that's different to the domestic sector is that people often get promoted faster. Mm. So you'll have a lot of first-time heads, a lot of first-time principal CEOs that aren't, don't necessarily cultivate that from day one. Mm. And that's why we have the huge turnover in the international sector, one of the reasons why. Mm. And I, I think, I mean, it's interesting, I spoke to a head um, recently, she just got her first headship. And I was talking to her, and it was very late in the year. We we're having a conversation. And I said, what's the makeup of the board? She didn't know. Mm. I was like, okay, you've not done your homework. You're, you're potentially going to go to another country. You're going with your family, with your children. And if you don't know the makeup of the board, then how do you know that this is going to be an environment that is supportive of what you're trying to do? Mm. Um, it might be that, yes, you have a great relationship with the chair, but what's the rest of the board interested in? Mm. And are they also on board? So finding, uh, taking the time, and you'll see this with more experienced international heads, is they will know. If they're looking at a school, they'll know precisely what the board makeup is, how it works, who's the decision maker, who is really the decision maker, and unpicking that. And so my mm. advice would really be to uh, sort of, uh, particularly if it's your first stint into a role like that, is to take your time to talk to other people, talk to the staff, ask the staff about when you're going through and if you're going through that interview process, uh, you know, how does the board work in the school? Do they, do you feel supported by the board? What is the mission of the school? Does the board li li live the mission mm. in its decision-making? How do you know? And they just like you're interviewing them, uh, they're interviewing you, you're interviewing them yes. just as much. Yeah. And I sometimes think because of this fast career movement is that people see it as a great opportunity. They're very excited about it. And in that, they don't really do their homework mm. in understanding how it will work. And sometimes uh, that can cause a lot of tension. And sadly, it can lead to really unsuccessful placements. Yes. Yes. Well, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of great insights and advice there. I'm sure people listening, hopefully, either hopefully already do that kind of stuff or we'll think about it or we'll take it forward to sort of you know, implement and augment what they're doing already. Now, on the flip side, this sort of last section of boards, obviously, is that we've talked about, you know, we sort of alluded to some of the things that can go wrong, but obviously we've also talked about all the, the great things and the support you get and so forth. That expertise that's in that room, obviously, is, is great, isn't it? Because like you say, it's, it's they, they'll have the institutional knowledge of the school, they'll know the parent community really well, they might know, they might have their own background from another sector to bring in. How do you make the most of that? And and how do you know, you know, how is it, you know, because I presume some board members are presumably very vocal and say, well, actually, my background is in the law, you know, I can bring in expertise and help there. But some people sort of hide away a little bit about what they do. And actually, they suddenly, you know, you have to draw and say, well, how can you, what else can you bring to the school that we can benefit from? Yes, I think that in a smaller board, it's easier because obviously mm. you can get to people more quickly. In some of the larger boards that I've been in where you've probably got 12, 13 people on the board and it's a very formal structure, mm. um, then it's a little bit a little bit different. And what we were talking earlier, Dad, about the um, about how you use external expertise. This is one of the ways that, that you can use external expertise. So when you're, particularly if you're coming in as a new head or director or you've got changeover in the, the board, it's bringing um, a specialist alongside to work with the board on its agreed protocols, how it will work, how is it structured, how do you get the most of it? Um, you know, if you're going to go into specialist groups within the board, so you might have a finance committee, you might have a teaching and learning committee, um, safeguarding, whatever it might be, mm. that you start to hone in on who can bring what and make sure that everybody's voice is heard. Yeah. And, and do you do that in your setting in terms of like, you know, what kind of expertise, you know, without going to them too much specifics potentially, but, you know, when you, is it the case of you need you need an expertise in a certain area and you know you haven't got it in your your staff cohort, but rather than going out immediately and, and paying a consultant or something, you can go to the board and say, does anyone know about this? Anyone dealt with this kind of problem before? Someone go, actually, in my past career, or I currently do now, we've dealt with this exactly, and this is what we did type thing. And that that's an interesting point as you start to move away from the board as being a strategic um, mm. uh, board. In terms of if, if they're looking at the long-term health and sustainability of the school, is it their role to bring in specialist expertise? So an example we've had recently is we're looking at our, we've got a new campus opening next year, which I'm very excited by, but yes. I've got a few more lines. Can you see, Dan? They're coming. <laughs> they're there. 
No, I can't see them either. So <laughs> very expensive health sort of cream, face cream. Um, uh, but if we're looking at the, the the board structure that we have, so one of the things we wanted to do is how do we go out to local businesses and partnerships and do a hooray, we're here and we have a wonderful new campus and come and find out more about us. And we spoke to some um, members of our board. We were talking about it, and they were like, "Oh, we've got we've got links with this organisation, that organisation. Let's form a special group with our my comms lead, who only works mm. part time, um, and we will help her." design a strategy for going out to the local businesses and companies. Now, this is where my board is technically not operating in the way that a board should. It's, looking, mm. it's not looking at the long term. Well, it is in a way, but it's becoming a bit more operational. Yes. So I think, I think there's a, absolutely a place for that, especially in a small school where we need all the help we can get. We don't have um, specialists left, right and centre. So in this case, but then again, it's with a really defined permit per, mm. uh, purpose. So in the board, we agreed, right, this board member and this board member have got expertise in this. So they're now going to work with the ISR colleague. They're going to form a special project group. We'll develop blah, 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 and then bring the plan back to the board then the, the responsibility for executing it will then come back into the school side of things. So that's quite a dynamic way of using the expertise in a board. And I think one that you'll see very much in the smaller schools. Mm. In the larger schools, it's a little bit different again. Yes, because, well, can you say why exactly? Well, probably because if you were, so if I think in you know, my school, you know, is, is very small, you know, I've got 180 students um, in my school now. It's growing, growing. Yes. New campus. <laughs> but I came, yes, new campus. But I came from the, the British school in the Netherlands, where at that time there were about eight, over 800 staff um, and what, 2,600 wow. students. Yeah. So the board there, the um, uh, the British ambassador uh, was the chair of the association. And it was, it was more formal around the long-term strategic um, health of the school particularly financial, looking at buildings, capacity, you know, really running it as a corporate entity, really. Mm. So the the chances that somebody in a corner is going to have a conversation about how we can network with a particular group of um, companies is unlikely to happen there. But at the board, what they're likely to do is identify, we need a strategy for blah, blah, blah. And then it would come into the um, executive leadership of the school to manage that. So you've just got more hands on deck and more specialism. Mm. Um, what sometimes happens when I was um, somewhere like BSN is I was linked with one of the um, board members is if I needed, if I was developing a particular thing around uh, school improvement, then they might talk to me about their leadership, learning and development arm. So there, at that time, there were around 67, 70 people employed at Shell working solely on leadership development within the Shell company. Mm. Now, in, in our school, we've got one or two people working yes. on leadership development. So there, I could go there, I was able to work and I was, so she provided a conduit for me to be able to access the expertise within that company. So that's a kind of a scaled up version of uh, what we see in my school. So your board people, it's not only the expertise that they bring, but it's the connections that they bring. And when you're, again, international, you don't know the local landscape. So when you parachute in, you're there because you're a brilliant educator and you understand international schools. Do you understand how businesses operate in Liechtenstein? Do you know the political dynamic in uh, the canton of St. Gallen in Switzerland? Mm. And you can't possibly, but the people who live locally can. And so uh, it's a good way to use them for local knowledge as well. Well, there's a lot there, but and again, I, I think a lot of it makes sense, doesn't it, about how you the, the different type of structures, boards and where you pull that expertise in, but where you have to be careful for it to start becoming, like you say, too operational and moving away from the, the core purpose. But like when it makes sense, it's a, it's a great asset to have. Now, that, we, we've talked a lot about boards there and there's a lot of very interesting things. And, and it kind of, obviously, where we... Are, you know, got to there leads so nicely to the last thing we were going to talk about for the next sort of, 10, 12 minutes, which is about external expertise. So you can, you kind of touched on that is that, okay, so there are times when you're going to need to bring in a consultant or someone else. It's not going to be the board. It's not in house. So you need to pay someone. Obviously it's, it's a big issue, but how, like, I mean, how have you ever approached, you know, as a leader, finding the right person, you know, agreeing that you're going to spend the money in that area? that that person is going to have a say in how you run the school, which ultimately you might kind of go, well, you know, how do you put the balance between, you know, oh, we paid them, they said this to this. I don't agree with it, but they're the expert. You know, like all these, there's a lot there, but how do you sort of approach all that? It's really hard. Mm. And it's interesting because I've come from a PD background where I led a PD arm at Oxford University Press for a yes. while. So I was more on that leading PD. I mean, we're working with 120,000 teachers a year. So I had a huge PD arm and had access to all kinds of amazing expertise. And one of the things around consultants, education consultants, is that they've they've specialised. 
that's why they do what they do. And they can only survive if they're good because otherwise they wouldn't get rebooked. So mm. there is kind of a, a natural progression there. But it's also difficult to know who is great and how, how long out of a school is too long. Mm. So when you see consultants that have been out for a long time and they're telling you all the things that you should do, but they've never walked in your shoes, does that matter? Mm. And I, you know, I find that an interesting um, area to explore. But one of the biggest challenges that we have as heads is, so for example, I'll give you an example from my school. So in our school, we've identified that we really want to look at the maths teaching and learning in the 3 to 18 continuum. We have um, aspects of uh, high quality education, but we're an international school, which means we have students coming and going left, right and centre. There are gaps left, right and centre. And so how do you plug them? Because with mathematics, if you haven't got firm foundations, you can't build on it. So if you haven't got strong conceptual understanding, then when you get to the diploma and you're trying to um, develop higher level maths, students won't make as much progress as you want. Mm. So we're, we're in lots of debate about how can we improve the quality of teaching and learning in mathematics and have time specific intervention for students so that we don't we deal with the tail issue. So, yes, we've I've sent people off. So I had people have gone off to different maths conferences. We bought loads of books. We've listened to loads of podcasts. And so we're sourcing all this information. And then I want to bring somebody in. So like TDT recommends, like from the Curie research around having uh, an external voice to offer as a crit critique and mirror you back who has a subject specialism. The That's what we decided. We like, right, we want a maths consultant who understands the 3 to 18 continuum that will come in. They will basically deconstruct how we teach here what we do, how we do it, who does it. Mm. And then they will then start to reconstruct it with high quality teaching and learning of mathematics principles underpinning it. So that's all, that's all good stuff. The question is who? Most heads will ring their friends. <laughs> it's like call a friend. Yeah. You know, so it's like one of those. And I know I'm on, you know, I'm on different boards. So I'm on the Swiss group of international schools. I often email out, I needed some help with the security system for my new building. So I was like, right, everybody, I need a security system for my new building. It needs to do this, this, and this. Who have you worked with? Mm. So the, the value of word of mouth is probably the greatest advocacy that you have within the education market. Yes. And so, and it's the same for consultants. The problem is that word of mouth doesn't necessarily mean that that person has the rigor and the thing that you need. Mm. They might offer a really great inset, which is great fun. Everybody has a great day, but it makes no impact at all. If you come back in six months, you'd see no change in behavior or any impact on student outcomes. So one of the things that I do is I look for, I use the word of mouth because I trust my professional, my colleagues elsewhere. I use that first. And then I take the time with my own team to work out what is it that we really want from this person? And therefore, what skills do they need to have? Mm. Then we start to shortlist. And then almost as you would like for any other interview processes, we narrow it down from there. So that this kind of due diligence bit is really important for commissioning of external expertise. Yeah. We've done that. We've actually sourced a maths consultant that's worked on the 3 to 18 continuum. They actually um, worked on the Singapore project in the UK. They've uh, worked all around the world. They're now teaching postgraduate mathematics and they bring a depth of knowledge uh, around the development of global understanding of maths teaching and learning beyond what we have in our own school. Because we couldn't possibly, because we're busy teaching. Yes. <laughs> so having, I think that's the, one of the things, one way that we've done that within our own organization. The other side of this is the big names. You know, it's interesting because the SGIS board, we were planning our, our Swiss group of international schools conference. And we were getting all that we wanted to focus on something on DEIJ which is all good stuff and needed mm. at the moment. You know, I mean, women ed, so I'm all for that. And, um, but one of the things was who were going to be the speakers. And we started to get quotes in of like 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 to speak, wow. just to speak at a, a conference. Yeah. And, you know, I start to find that slightly questionable. Yes. So do I. I had no idea that was the kind of fees. Yeah, that's incredible. Neither did I. And, so, and I've worked in this field for a long time, but the fees have gone up significantly mm. um, in, in recent years for all kinds of different reasons. And of course, the COVID effect. Let's not forget for independent consultants, they didn't work. Mm. Many of them, their businesses fell off a cliff um, during COVID. 
And so I, I know from many of my friends who are consultants as well, is a lot of them have gone back into teaching roles, back into schools, working for, if they're in the UK, they might have taken a job at a trust or a university. So their, their availability of consultancy has probably declined is my, my, my uh, sense of it. Yes. Because people have had to make sure they get a regular income. Yeah. But what's left is it means you've now got a narrower pool mm-hmm. and where the, the world is reopening and we're all trying to move things forward. And, it, you know, even if I think about my own small maths example, we had planned for that consultant to come out last year because of COVID. We didn't. We delayed our, our planning and our development because we were so busy just keeping our school focused and focusing all our energies on our kids and making sure they were healthy and well and we're looking after their mental health. Mm. So we d- delayed our strategic development so that we're going slightly slower because that's all we have capacity for at this time. Yeah. So does that mean, and then you, it's interesting, we were starting the conversation with the UK and the current situation in the mm. UK financially. And what impact does this have on schools? Does this, does this mean that schools, the smaller schools, can no longer afford to have high quality expertise in terms of consultancy? Are we now dependent on trusts and groups that, that we buy into set packages? Mm. How do we know the quality of that provision? So I think there's a lot of questions to be had about who who do you use for external expertise and how, and how will you know that you've been successful? If it's worked well, what will be different? Mm. So starting with that end in mind before you embark on a partnership is is important. And I'd say yeah. looking at it as that sort of 18 months to two year relationship. So it's almost a school improvement partner. Yes. And what I like about that is you're clearly saying there are, you know, you, you don't have the answers. And actually this is an ongoing battle of trying to work this out because I think it, it sort of, in some ways, it makes me think that's kind of what you want from a consultant, isn't it? You wouldn't want somebody who's going to come in and just kind of, I would assume the way you've taught that, somebody's going to come in and say, oh, yeah, I can fix this overnight, do this, go with me, and everything will be amazing. Because actually, you want someone who goes, yeah, that is a tricky problem, and I'll have to look at this and how it works. And your setting will be different. Yes, I've done some great work down you know, over there, and that's some gr- great to get the recommendation, but I'll have to go away and think about how we do it here. And that would make you almost feel like, good, this person gets that it's a, it's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight, or the, the, they can't use the same you know, PowerPoint presentation verbatim here as it did down the road because it's a it's a journey and that seems like when you draw a due diligence i mean again do you sort of how far do you usually push someone on what they can provide and what they do because this you don't, you don't want to interrogate them but you obviously want to sort of get the sense that they take it seriously and have a sort of we listen to what you're asking them i do interrogate them <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i know I, the truth is i know many of them uh, yes. because of the the work that i've done in the past but i'm really clear about what i'm trying to achieve in the school mm. because I've agreed that with my team. So with the math team, we're saying, right, we really want to look at this. And so I think if it's somebody that you don't know, because I very, that's the other thing, I very rarely now work with somebody that I, I don't, I don't know. Mm. Uh, if you've never come across, actually I did recently. So we're in our new campus, which I keep mentioning, our beautiful new campus, yes. um, we, we were looking at the interior design of the new campus. And I wanted to work with an interior design company that would really, as much thinking as we put into this ecologically designed, you know, carbon neutral campus. So I want to make sure the interior matches the quality of the physical space mm. itself. So, and I didn't, I didn't know anybody. I've not worked with anyone like that before. So I was coming at it completely cold. So we had a bit of a debate and we all did a bit of Googling like mm. you do. And then we, then we did the word of mouth. So I put it out on LinkedIn. I had some like 90 responses. <laughs> I put it out on, uh, on some of the, the boards that I'm on and said, who you worked with. We then collated, we created a list of the repeated recommendations. We looked at what people had said about them. We looked at the work that they'd done previously. Because of course, the best measure of what they do is what, by what they've done already, mm. just like when you interview someone. And we then invited them here to meet with us, look around our campus and just get a feel for them. And that relationship was really key. Now, we're still in the middle of it. So we have commissioned, we're working with um, a company called Space Oasis, who are going to uh, help us design our new interior. And I'll let you know how it goes. We'll talk again in a year. Yes, Dad. let's I'll do that. I'll let you know if they're any good or not. Well, yeah, let's, let's do that because it's a, it's a very interesting. I was talking to someone else about this so on a, not quite interior design, but on building design and, and lighting and heating and ventilation. It's something that came up in the pandemic, obviously, particularly ventilation. As a thing that, and, and a lot of people I was speaking to, the experts in that arena were sort of saying, well, we've been talking about this for years. You know, good ventilation means not having heavy carbon dioxide in there, which means you can study better. And there are sort of various studies here and there that kind of prove this. And it's almost like, well, actually, yes, if you're going to spend eight hours a day in a building and it's not designed right for how you work, well, that's going to have a detriment to it. And if we're looking for gains wherever we can get them, and, you know, the teachings are high quality, but actually improving the ability to concentrate by having a well lit room, whatever it might be, well, that, why, why wouldn't we? 
we do that. But of course, people, you know, it's, it's a complicated area. But no, I think it's a really interesting um, issue. And I, I can see why that's like you said, you've never dealt with that before. But it's almost like, well, yeah, because unless you've built a new campus, a new building, you probably wouldn't, would you? So the process to get to find someone is an interesting one, isn't it? And shows kind of you do have to put the legwork in. You can't just, you know, say, I was going to say open the phone book, but it's, you can't just do a Google, take the top hit and... Kind of, yeah, it's a bit like that. I mean, it's a bit, it, even with all that, that rigour, it's still a little bit of an unknown. What I'd yeah. love, I would love, and I've been trying to get this for like decades, yeah. I would love some kind of quality mark. And I know like TDT, Curie, they've been talking about this for a long time. The DFE looked at it um, a couple of years ago to really think about, can we quality mark CPD? Is there some way or even some school improvement models mm. that we we that are research-based, evidence-informed, that we can start to identify those that ideologically follow that kind of structure? And then at least we know that the money we're spending, which is hard-fought money, you mm. know, even more so now than ever before, we want to make sure that anything we're spending makes a difference to young people. Yeah. So I, I'd really advocate for that. And I know it's hard to do because it's such a, a varied um, thing, but even a, a set of principles that people could subscribe to would be really cool. Mm. So if you want to do that in Tez? Yes, well, I'm sure we would. I mean, obviously, we, we, we sit on both. We have foot in both of these camps. So whether we could also create our own quality market and then attributed to ourselves i don't know but um it, it, it reminds me of a piece that we wrote i wrote earlier this year about edtech and the need for like edtech regulation and schools are kind of flying blind on buying edtech providers but that's that's a slightly different arena but but very it's similar the same way. kind of thing it's the same isn't it yeah what are the principles that yeah, that, do you, they... that underpin how you work yeah exactly and and the last question then on this is something i asked a minute ago is have you ever been in a situation where you have worked with a consultant you, you thought they were good they, they paid good money to come in and for whatever reason, you just it hasn't really worked out, or, the, or what they've suggested you do didn't didn't sit right with you. And have you ever just they just discarded that, or kind of said afterwards, "Look, we're not going to do what they said because it didn't sit right with me," or, or sort of a modified version of it? Or have you always sort of can you hand on heart sort of say, "No, the people we we brought in have always sort of yeah, they've had some good ideas that we've implemented." No, I couldn't say that hand on heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very old, Dan. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've um, made mistakes along the way. And actually, most of the times where it hasn't worked is because I've not commissioned, or we as a team, have not commissioned them in the way that we wanted to. Or we mm. weren't clear about what we really wanted. So actually, the responsibility really comes back to, to right. me on that. Yeah. But the times where it's not worked well, I've had I've had two big ones. Um, one where I was looking at early years development, and I brought in some early years consultants to work on with the early years team uh, to develop continuous provision. The problem was, is what my idea of continuous provision was, um, theirs was a lot more hardcore mm. and it wasn't aligned with what my early years team fundamentally believed. So when they came in, they came in quite hardcore with, oh, you're doing, you know, almost the tick box. Uh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. Oh, and you need to do this more. Um, it was extremely damaging for the the team that it came into because it mm. really not their confidence. Well, actually, what they were doing was good. We just wanted to tweak it a little bit. So there, the consultants came in basically doing a complete deconstruct, mm. and that's not really what was needed. So yeah. that was a waste of money, and it made people unhappy, and we basically had to ignore it right. over time. So that yeah. was a waste of time and money and caused a lot of upset. Mm. The other time um, that I've worked with a consultant who was brilliant utterly brilliant. Um, and they delivered uh, a series of PD sessions that got the fire lit um, with uh, the staff, but it didn't have substance. Mm. So what we hadn't mapped out is exactly all that COVID stuff. You know, if we're successful, what does it look like? So apart from having a nice time, mm. so it's, it's almost the opposite of the early years environment. Yes. It went too far the other way. We had a great <laughs> time, but nothing changed. Yeah. So again, for me, it's all around that planning from the very beginning. What is it you're trying to achieve? And then using the expertise, um, the you know, that critical friend to just like the board is actually a mm. full circle. Yes. The board is my critical friend. You know, I need we need to be able to have honest conversations. I need to be honest with them. They need to be honest with me. And together we collectively aim to achieve what we've collectively agreed mm. that we want to achieve. Yes. So where you get that alignment, whether at board level or or at consultancy level, is where it's most successful. Mm. If you're not clear about where you want to go and what you want to achieve and what how why you're using them, then it doesn't work. I said it was my final question, but I feel I should offer the opportunity to put forward a case where it did go really well. Like a consultant you brought in, like, you know, because then obviously you can give an example of like, yeah, and we got that. Because that balance, like you see, one example here, one example of that other side, but when you got the balance just right. 
Yeah. The best example, I think, is where it's been a multi-campus um, approach, where um, in, so in a school group with multiple schools, and we were looking at developing an aspect of the curriculum. We brought in an amazing consultancy team that built could, was focused on building capacity of the, the different schools themselves. Mm. So they came in, they came alongside, they weren't threatening, it wasn't judgmental. We wanted to approve an aspect of the curriculum within a subject. They really honed in on what was good practice, what we were already doing, that was great. They helped do pricey of the research evidence about what, what, how we could get to where we wanted to get to. And then they worked with the, the staff themselves and it was a structured program over about two and a half years. And they worked with the subject leads. So it was direct um, coaching all the way through with a clear end purpose. And it had a significant impact on student outcomes. Mm. So that that's the best model. Um, and that's what I'm hoping to do with our maths uh, yes. consultant who is actually I'm, I'm talking with them tomorrow is uh, one of our oh, first well, meetings to do exactly this mapping. Yes. And by this time next year, I would expect us to have absolute clarity as to around the actions that we'll be taking to raise standards here. Mm. And also a really clear idea of what that actually looks like. Yeah. Well, no, that's that's great, and I think it's nice to have the the positive one as well as the balancing out with the ones that didn't go so well, just to prove that you know it does go well on a lot of times. I do do something right now. Yes, again. exactly. Yeah, yeah we do. Um, <laughs> no, many things right clearly, but um, yeah, no, exactly that point. Um, so no, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's been well, it has been absolutely fascinating and so much food for thought there. And I think even the most experienced leader who's who's been on the block and done all this, I think, will take something from that. But certainly for, for sort of new and upcoming and establishing leaders that, that to listen to this and sort of. A recognize that yeah things will go wrong that you won't always get it right that that's okay that they they probably people listen listen to this recording their own consultancy disasters shall we say but also remembering the good times and shows that you know that's just part of the journey but I think on the board stuff as well you know again it's clearly a really big part of, of leadership maybe something that isn't talked about enough in certain circles I don't know but it's, it's clearly so much there to talk about that thank you so much for taking the time to share it and put that sort of expertise and knowledge that you've got out there and I'm sure anyone listening to this you know do get in touch on Twitter at Tez at Danworth at Liz, remind me of your Twitter handle. Oh, it's Liz Am Free. It's actually my initials, Anne-Marie. So Liz Am Free. Right, there you go. So do let us know what you thought. Offer your wisdom, your questions, your insights on the talk. It's a big topic. So it's great to get that kind of information sharing in the sector. Dan, if anyone's made it to the end of this session, um, yes. I want to know what is the correct date to put the heating on in your school? Ah, yes, there you go. Yeah, so we're talking on the 20... Well, this interview is on the 26th of September. We're talking about when do you put the heating on in your school? Is it? Is it... You've got to wait till October, right? It seems to be the consensus between Liz and I. But let us know what you're doing in your school. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure lots of people hopefully will get I'm freezing right now. I'm wearing a jumper. I've got the jacket on. We've got snow on the mountains. Uh, five so days to go. Yeah. October. It's October. Yes, definitely. Yes. Stick to that. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, let us know on Twitter again. And um, yeah, Liz, thank you again. And um, we'll look forward to catching up to hear about the interior design impact as well in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Dan.